Mia, what was that story you told me the other day about you were going out? I went to Ivy in Sydney, Reinhardt, with friends. Oh, right, yes. Some of them went inside. But when it was my turn, they stopped me and the bouncer says, hey, we need to verify your ID. I'm like, yeah, this is my ID. He says, no, no, you need to stand before this camera and we'll snap a photo of your face. And I said, excuse me, what is this camera? That's this odd. is my ID, scan it. Why do you need to take my photo? And he said, this is to verify that you are the person in the ID. I'm like, no, you can't take my photo until you explain to me what is this camera? Yeah. What is this kiosk? He refused. He refused to let me in and he asked me to leave. I was so angry. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've been living in a dream world, Neo. A prison for your mind. So we were two groups, some friends inside, we are outside. And I said, can you, is there other way to verify my identity before I walk in? And he said, no, if you don't take your photo, you have to leave. I was really angry. And he made a scene. My friend's like, what's going on? What's happening? One of them is a lawyer. I mean, no, no, no. Don't stand before that camera until you know what it is. And I looked, there is this New South Wales government logo on the kiosk. And under it, there's another logo that says Patron Scan. Patron Scan, okay. And I'm like, what is this company? So I took my camera, I took a screen of the dashboard, and I looked it up online. And it is actually a camera that is empowered by facial recognition technology. If you're a troublemaker, they flag you. And you're banned from going to that venue. So I'd never get in. (laughs) And it depends, of course, on the venue owner, what uh, Mm. troublemaker or bad behavior. Mm. So if they were having a bad day, they will flag you. And once you're flagged, your profile go to law enforcement and all the other venues use patron scan. Wow. Mm -hmm. They didn't take my (coughs) consent. They didn't explain to me it was a facial recognition. And they didn't tell you it was going to law enforcement either. At all. And PatronScan is a very interesting company because online, when you look for PatronScan, it's privately held. There are only three employees registered to work for this company. You have no clue where their headquarter is. They only mentioned that their first deal was in Canada, but they never tell you where the headquarter. And they make nine million US dollars a year. Wow. And on their website, they say, we proudly share facial prints data with law enforcement and businesses. That's, and, not, that's not dodgy and at the all, best, is The it? best way when you go to their techno, this kiosk page to understand the kiosk, what it does, the title says, the bouncer that never forgets a face. And they operate in 200 cities around the world. And that means any venue that uses this technology, when you are flagged as a troublemaker in one venue, and that's, of course, to the discre- left to the discretion of the venue owner. You are put in that flag list, shared with all these venues around the world, shared with law enforcement. I walked away, of course. And I'm like, good, I didn't walk in that place. <laughs> and I was thinking of all the people they walked in before me, including my friends, who were oblivious yes. about that there is a fundamental digital right that was just violated, their privacy. And that's why we decided to do this whole episode about the state of facial recognition in Australia and why Australians and people living here should care about it. If you are following the news this week, the last two weeks. Yes, for anyone that cared to open up a newspaper or look through their feed online, we've got a few interesting articles about companies, Australian companies being called out for facial recognition, uh, taking facial recognition of their customers, storing it and using it, but the customers had no idea. So look, last last year, 7-Eleven in Australia, they collected the facial prints of 1.6 million customers and they had no idea. So what you might be surprised to know about that is that 7-Eleven were never fined yep. for doing this, even though it was very clear that they had overstepped the mark. And now the OAIC, they've opened a probe into Bunnings and Kmart, two very big names in Australian society, over facial recognition without much hope for further action. And that was after 7-Eleven's action. So we haven't learnt much, have we, Mia? No, and that's why we asked a friend to join us today. We have Andrew McAllister. He's a data ethicist and data privacy expert. And he's joining us today. And we really want you to introduce yourself, Andrew, because he's have such an amazing history of working with government, private sector, retail. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, my name is uh, Andy and I'm a, I'm a data ethicist, which is a bit of a highfalutin term, I guess. Um, sounds sounds it, wicked, though. It does. Yeah, ethicist. <laughs> it's this sort of role I've been doing for maybe 10 or 15 years and it, it, I've done it with governments and with charities and now with um, the private sector. And really what, what we're doing is making decisions about data sharing um, and it is in the space beyond, beyond compliance. So what, what businesses and what we're looking to do now in that sort of role is um, look beyond what our legal obligations are and think about these things around trust and around the intersection of technology and what we need to do when you might be meeting the, you know, the Privacy Act and the requirements, but what, what do we want to do with these technologies? Where are we going with them? So my job is really on the tools. So I'm, I'm, you know, there's middle management people like me in all these corporations, and we all make decisions. Sometimes they're a risk governance person, or a privacy officer, or a data governance or data ethicist person. But all these people are making decisions about um, people's digital rights and putting up, you know, recommendations on data use cases. And that's what I've been doing for the best part of ten years, maybe hundreds of ethics applications for human right, um, research ethics applications and now um, use cases in, in business and government. Well, so, welcome, Andrew. Thank welcome. you. Yeah. Mia, thank can you I tell you why, can yeah. I tell you why I'm excited that Andrew's here? And that's because every time we do an episode, we tend to fall onto one repeating theme at the end of all our research, which is Ethics. Yes. Where are the ethical conversations about what these technologists are doing? How come they're not like the medicine practice where they've already instituted courses in ethics and they regularly, if you're a medical student, you're, you're regularly taking courses in ethics and trying to understand what would the best actions be in that particular patient case. And they routinely open up all sorts of uh, past cases and look at what could be done in the future that's better. So I'm excited for two reasons. Number one, Andrew, Andrew, what I hear from you is it sounds like these conversations are starting to happen Yep. and they're there. But secondly, it's really great to have someone with your insight and knowledge that could advance the conversation more broadly. I thought you were excited because he plays banjo. <laughs> he recognized your guitar. What's the guitar made? The Cole Clark. The that's Cole. right. I yep. because you guys are musicians, you're going to have a jam before after this. Well, yes, you play the banjo, Andrew. I do. That's phenomenal. Yeah, I do. I, I do. Um, not not particularly well, but um, and so. not while you're doing ethical. Yeah, you've work got to you've got to do something. It's a little bit silly when you're dealing with these sorts of heavy conversations all day long. So, we're trying so can you explain to our audience what is facial print? What is biometric data? I think this is important to start with. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's a really good question. There is no, uh, you know, official definition in Australia. I think the government goes off the Biometrics Institute um, definition, which is really biometric technology encompasses a range of new, um, new biometric and health data collection sources. So by um, definition, it's things like iris scanning, facial prints, but it also extends to things like gait analysis, the way you walk. Um, how you smell, also um, wow. all, all of these. Smell. What? Yeah, and and even things like signature, the way a signature is captured, can also be considered biometric. Le legally biometric um, data in the sense that it's capturing the the weight and the way that you're. Did you know that, Reinhardt? I didn't no know idea, that. No. So there's a there's a really broad spectrum. Of what's biometric um, yeah, data. But one of the issues that we have in Australia is that, you know, we don't have biometric laws and it's it's really tested on a case-by-case -case basis. It, it's a particular class of data, right? Yeah, it's and a particular... And data can be categorised yeah. in various ways. Biometric data yeah. is particularly important because it's very closely related it's to who we are. It's individualised. Yeah. Things like fingerprints and so on. Yeah. Uh, things that are uniquely Palm identifiable print, yeah. to us. Yeah, right? it would be. it's classified as a sensitive data. Um, under the Privacy Act. Yeah, and, and in cyber, we always say if you lose your password, you can or it's stolen, you can change it. Mm. But if if your facial print or your fingerprint, been the digital facial print, of course, stolen, you can't change your face unless mm. you pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to do yeah. those plastic surgery that criminals do to change their face. That's crazy, huh? And they've even invented makeup. 
Oh yeah, I've heard yeah. about this. There's the like anti-facial recognition right. makeup that our activists are using. I thought that was pretty kick-ass. Yeah, they confuse the facial recognition. Yeah, so with with facial recognition not being properly regulated in Australia, Andrew, what does that leave the door open to? What are the types of things then that could happen that customers or just the average person might not be aware is happening? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's it's particularly invasive because, as you say, it's persistent. It's something that doesn't change. So the, the, the risks with capturing that sort of information is that is it reasonably necessary to have something that's like your DNA or your fingerprint on file for the purposes which they're using? Like you say, if you visit the Ivy, um, the reasons that they are capturing your face print or your DNA it's not. Re- it's really. Is it reasonably necessary for no, keeping you of safe? Of course not. So the the mischief in it, or the invasiveness thing, is that it's people are using this technology. It's ubiquitous. It's cheap to use and to get, and but there's no real reason to collect it. So that's where the issue, I think, um, and the danger is for people. For example, the criminal reason. If I was a criminal, I'd expect that. The well, law enforcement authorities precisely. in that country might want yeah. to take things that could identify me to a crime and link yeah. me in, in an evidential sort of way. But you're yeah. talking about something very different precisely. because these are just average people walking into a Bunnings or a Yeah, and it makes everyone a suspect. If you're scanning every person's face, that means everyone is a, sus- a suspect. Well, everyone is a yeah. cr- criminal. And that's, that's my problem with the facial recognition. I felt like a criminal walking in the Ivy. Well, that's the, and the purpose of them collecting it under that scheme and for Bunnings and Kmart, it's the same argument, which is community safety. Now, it might be reasonable for, say, Home Affairs to collect your face print um, and match you against a movement alert Yeah, but list. why private businesses but do private, that? Is there a reason, and this is the exact reason that the Bunnings CEO has come to, that we need to do this because we want to protect our staff and keep the community safe. So this argument around community safety mm. is what they're using, but... Do we they, buy it? Well, they're not the same as uh, the federal police, right? And even if they have that information, what will they do with it? And I just want to make that point with Ivy. It is, that's actually the, one of the most dangerous pubs in Sydney. Why? Uh, they've got the highest assault rates, mm. but a lot of those assaults are also by their own staff. Um, and you can Google that. I mean, no kidding. We yeah, don't use so the word Google here. <laughs> right. We're against gatekeepers for the internet. I want to read this. Um, apparently, the Privacy Act says if you are an organization owner and you want to protect yourself from, um, let's say, theft, whatever. Um, so it's very vague in the Privacy Act. The, what type of activities do you want to protect yourself from when you use such technology? Mm. And apparently that was the argument that 7-Eleven used to mm. get away with using facial recognition mm. in their premises. I'm looking at it here. It says, has a reason to suspect that unlawful activity or a misconduct of a serious nature that relates to the entity's functions or activities has been, is being, or may be engaged in. So mm. that's quoted Maybe. from the Privacy Act. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one. So and that needs to be completely removed. Can I talk about something else? Why is it important to regulate such industry, especially the private uh, facial recognition? There's something called second use. And second use is you collect the data to protect your staff and your, your establishment. But this data, because data is always shared with a third party, someone who didn't collect it, and it wasn't, and they can use it for purposes other than the purpose that was collected for. The second use. The second use of mm. data. And this is a very big um, um, problem because what happened is you extract all this data, it's sitting there, and you share it, and you never have control who has access to it later and what it's being used for. And just patrons can saying that they uh, sh- proudly share this data with mm-hmm. law enforcement and mm. other business owners, that tells you that this data has been actually actively shared with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So explain to us why it's very dangerous to collect all these facial prints about people yeah. and law enforcement now have access to it through private businesses. Mm. They can have, like, explain to us the dangers of that. 
Yeah, this, like, I guess it's a known issue with privacy is, is that, like, as you say, secondary use or, or the reasonable use. And there is a danger, particularly with biometrics, when you collect it, it's persistent, and then you can use it in ways with matching other data that you have. And this is the point of what businesses are doing. What they actually want to do is use your facial print and match, match that with other data. Yes. So yes. a place like Ivy, and I, I know this, that they have partnered with um, Mesh, and they, which provides scanning in each of Maryvale's pubs, and it picks up the electromagnetic um, signal from your phone. Wow. So they can okay. tell where you are in the, in the pub. In the pub. Where you, the dwell rates, where, you're, where you are. Where are you sitting in the pub. Yeah, there's a heat map that gets produced and they can, they can map that with your facial profile. You're on the Newport Arms app, so they know what you're Holy eating. Sh- They've wow. got MasterCard transactional data. Um, where they'll be swapping data. And they're correlating. Yeah, and this sort of thing is very common. They know what you drink even. Yeah, and this is very common. So, But what, what they want to do is collect all that and really what the facial print is is an one extra input into their behavioural analytics product, which they're selling onwards to <sighs> alcohol distributors wow. uh, and, new, and these new markets which are coming up. So... Someone like Justin Ham says, I've, I, I've got all these products. I've got people everywhere. I've got 2 million people and, and in the Hems Ivy. Justin is the yeah. CEO yeah. of Maribel. Yeah. So he, he doesn't know. All he knows is he's got 2 million people coming to the Ivy every year and I'm just going to start tracking people. And then he, he, he comes across what would be referred to as a behavioural surplus of analytics data. And he's sitting on this data, but there is no purpose for having it. Um, but what, the, he, uh, what, what happens is that purpose emerges in new behavioural markets where you've got alcohol distributors, maybe I don't, insurance, you know, like they might be health, interested care. in how much you're yeah, drinking. Insurance, maybe yes. they're going to give you a, a discount on your insurance if they, you know, or maybe they're going to charge you more if they know you're at the Even every maybe week. drinking and driving and they know now yeah. you're driving your yeah. car. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's all of these. And then if they have a face print, the next thing which companies are really looking for is that deep facial um, analytics. So they want to know what... Your emotions. Your emotional state, exactly. Yeah, okay, this is like watching a dystopian sci-fi. <laughs> like a, sl- a <laughs> Look slow motion. Look at Reinhardt's face. It's a slow <laughs> motion. My eyes have gone wide. <laughs> because I read about yeah. it. I didn't know Ivy. Would you walk in Ivy? Would you take and they ask for, to take your facial print, would you, do, would you say yes? I mean, it, it depends if it's the first pub I've visited or the last, <laughs> I guess. But no, I would. I, I would. I would because there's a, there's a feeling in Australia, and I'm a victim to that too, that it's inevitable, you know, that you must trade your civil liberties to, privacy. to have a service. If you want to go to the pub where you want to really do anything, you know, you must give up like parts of your identity and I've like I'm resigned to that, like many people are. So it's a lost cause for you. Well, I'm. I just, privacy. I'm, I mean, I'm not happy about it. And mm-hmm. if I had the opportunity to opt out, you know, I, I would in many cases. Would you, Reinhardt, walk in the IV now after knowing all this? I think I'd probably be a bit. I'd think two or three more times than I would before you you met with us and yeah. and, and you've mentioned this. I think what I would do is I would choose to go home, I think. Yeah, and you mentioned that also retailers track. There are a lot of ways to track people who are shopping. I'm going to the supermarket. What are the things they track about me when I'm accessing? Just buying my shopping... Yeah, yeah. My grocery. All of the behavioural segmentation sort of products. So most major retailers are going to have complicated segmentation models on you um, when you're on the, a loyalty program. You know, obviously that's yeah. going to be an yeah. extra source. Yeah, I would never um, use loyalty because they track everything. But there's also location, yeah. you know, location data products. Um, Points these, in exchange for private yeah. data. Yeah, What's the, location? Can you explain to us? Location? Well, like, um, you know, what like, do they collect? like you get like a Westfield. If uh-huh. you're in a Westfield, they're, uh-huh. they're Tracking, you know, where you're pinging onto the Wi-Fi. They wow. know my phone. The, yeah, they know trolleys are GPS tracking where you are. So the trolley has um, a GPS tracker. Uh, some of them do. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So but all of these retailers are like, if you look at um, like shoe manufacturers, all of these people, everyone is watching and creating like those maps of where customers are. So because this is it's about creating behavioural surplus. Is that what that is? Uh, yeah, uh, and yeah, marketing like a, that. Yeah. So getting getting profit from 
the additional data that could be derived from all these mm. customer movements, activities, purchases, uh, emotions that they're experiencing as yeah, they're going yeah. from so place to place. That's it's extraordinary. A, wow. That's like crazy. It's, a, it's an arms. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's an arms race in a sense that every business wants to have just that little incremental advantage, you know, compared to their competitors. So any little um, signal from the market you know, it, that's sellable, they're, they're going to jump And that's on. not regulated, right? The behavioural well, data that's being collected about us. Because it's moved so quickly and you've had uh, pioneers in surveillance like Google and, and these tech companies, which are really ahead of the curve when it comes to regulation, it was it's just like an open space. Wow. The last 20 years, there's been no regulation and they've just gone in there and claimed and said, now this is, this, this behavioural insights the, your web practices, and then what you do in the real world now, uh, this is our space, and they've just taken that, and regulators are still unsure how to, you know, how to keep up. And it's always the case, technology is faster than regulators. Yeah. And it's also the case of people are not aware what technologists yeah. are creating. Yeah. Later on, when whistleblowers come and explain to us these things, then we know. Okay, yeah. I didn't know about addictive uh, social media until yeah. um, Tristan Harris came and talked mm. about it. I'm like, oh, it makes yeah. sense. Yeah, Why how like well designed. Yeah. But this, the, what people maybe aren't aware of is that this unilateral decision by technologists to say, this is ours now and, and we are entitled to taking this data. So that's, a, that's an interesting thing to me. That what if... What if what happens to this data? Talk to us about what happens after the data is collected. Where might it end up? How far could it potentially go? Are we talking about Australian companies keeping data in Australian business or are we talking Overseas, more than that? Yeah, yeah like, like, I, well, I can think of some like, use cases which have really gone south recently, like, the, like Clearview AI, Clearview. Clearview, yeah. And they've created a massive um, facial recognition database. Mm. Um, and look at look at what's happened with that. Um, it's a tech, it's a agnostic ethically. It's neither good or bad. They've just got this data source. But then what is it being used for? So you've got um, facial. Like so, they've scraped Facebook and all of these public data sources. They've got facial um, imprints. Now that's being used in the Ukrainian uh, war with Russia at the moment. Mm. They've, they've sold that product to the Ukrainian government, who are using it. And now you've got, you've got the technology being used by soldiers and, and there's some t really shocking articles out at the moment about how that's being used. You can, soldiers are killing a Russian soldier, taking a photo, um, searching Clearview, finding the name and then just sending that photo straight to the family. So through Twitter. Getting that through Twitter. Down. Can and you believe it? Wow. They use Twitter and they say, hey, this mm. is dead. Trolling the His families fa the of Russian soldiers in the most wicked and environment. And this is a new psychological warfare wow. tool. And Clearview AI go, oh, we're just here providing this, um, you know, as a, as a means to help the Ukrainian government recognise who these soldiers are. Um, and, and to put identity on people. But what the soldiers on the ground are doing are just sending it straight to the mothers of well, death. Well, heard, I'd heard these stories, but I yeah. thought, how in the hell did they end up connecting and correlating the soldier mm. who's supposed to be anonymous on the battlefield anyway and dressed in uniform and yeah. just a, just another face in the crowd? How do they connect back like, to... So I, I, no one's explained this to me before, that Clearview is facilitating... Mm this and it's turned into a double-edged sword and i imagine they didn't anticipate this either as a business that that's well, yeah, what would the, be happening the classic the danger in, in this is the matching so you're only to re-identify somebody depends on the person and the motivation of doing that so a ukrainian soldier has access to facebook they can use that person's identity match it to another huge data set and it's the matching of data where these things go where everyone says, oh, I didn't, we didn't see that coming, that you could um, get someone's identity No one thought way. to connect those dots yeah. before and then the motivations the motivation people, drove that. Yeah, the motivation of a Ukrainian soldier, you know, like they obviously they're going to use that facial imagery for, you know, the That's amazing purposes business case of war. Too. And yeah. it's very timely. Very scary. Because I know that Facebook, they went under attack. So Facebook, without anyone's permission, they used Instagram photos over a billion and they created all these facial prints. And also they use, you know, the, when you want to tag your friend, they use facial recognition technology. They now turn it off. We talked about it in one of our episodes. This is a, a fact. Australia is the only democracy that uses facial recognition technology 
to enforce COVID restrictions. And it's been used in West Australia, been used, I think, in South Australia. Mm. Over 150,000 people had to use the G2G um, app where they have to take a photo of themselves. They receive a a text message from the police if you are being tested positive. The police ask you to download this app on your phone and they send you in random times messages, text messages. You have to take a photo of yourself and you have to keep your GPS, your location on and send it to them to make sure that you are sitting in your home. And it's the only democracy because in Europe, they fought it back. In US, there's federal law banning facial facial recognition technology. While in Australia, we use it for COVID. It's not regulated. And we weren't asked as a society. I don't remember any debates in parliament about this to begin with. It just sort of all happened and was Mm. thrown forward under the pretext of, well, we got to respond to COVID. No, but actually there was, right? There was a bill. Yeah. That was supposed to be discussed in the parliament oh. in 2019, I remember. And it was shelved. Oh, it was shelved, right. Yeah, so it no was one talks proposed, about it. But Can you talk really about it, painted. Andrew? Do you, and, uh, yeah. do you remember yeah. that one? Yeah, I, I, some understanding of the, the identity services matching bill. And it's mm-hmm. been going for about five years. Mm-hmm. So they first proposed it. Well, it's, it's been in the works for 15 years or so. Wow. Immigration has been doing facial matching uh-huh. um, for a long, long time. From I worked for them in 2005 um, and, and we were doing, you know, matching, a matching service. Um, but they obviously they want to complement that by having biometric matching capability in real time, those sorts of things. So the, there's a couple of bills, but the one started in 2017 is still going on. So the good thing about Australia, and this is credit to the federal government, it's taken five years, it's been in and out of human rights committees, they still haven't gotten anywhere with it. There's uh, a lot of sort of digital rights people are saying, can we hurry up and get some sort of model laws going? Yeah, because so, the private companies are just yeah, wild, wild west. Well, uh, interestingly, earlier this year, the, the Home Affairs put out a tender for biometric services, so they're pretty confident that this bill is going to get up. Mm-hmm. But there is a national uh, a facial identification service that the Attorney General's uh, will run and the OIIC, the Information Commissioner, um, there's some public privacy impact assessments about that. But interesting that um, it's taken this long. Five years. There's no urgency in Australia. Because Australians need to go out and protest and talk. Yeah, we're we're very much like resigned, I think, in Australia. Complacent. Our culture is a little bit, yeah, maybe complacent towards this. So I come from a dictatorship. And mm. uh, I'm an activist, a human rights activist. So living, coming from the all-knowing state to a democracy and see that people don't care about a basic right like privacy really terrifies me. Because the first step to dictatorship, any dictatorship regime, the first step to in the making is the mass surveillance. When you know everyone, like you have the whole demography under surveillance, you know their moves, you know where they are, you know who they talk, who are they talking to, you have their facial prints. This is the first step because you can oppress any, any uprise, you can oppress any protest. People are so scared to go out and protest or speak up because they will be tracked and, and mm. like... Yeah, so that's, mm. that's for me why people need to care about it because yeah. it is... This is the first step in the making of authoritarian there's a, there's an end There's an end game to all of this, isn't there? Which is once you have a population under mass surveillance, we're looking at a technocracy, possibly like the one we have in China. Yeah. The panopticon yeah. of, dig, of big tech yeah. monitoring our opinions and ideas and thoughts and being able to pervasively oppress us at a distance and send drones in to yeah. threaten us into a different opinion or at least to silence, right? Are we, are we, yeah. are we really... It's a bit hard to imagine, though, as, as, a, as someone who was born in Australia, who went to the, grew up going to the beach, playing cricket on the street, um, launching the odd firework here and there, perhaps, you know, not quite um, entirely legal at times, but um, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure I can't imagine Australian society as complacent as we are moving to something like a technocracy that we have in China. What about you, Andrew? What do you see when you see all this? I think what, what, what's the end game for Australian businesses participating in all of this? 
I mean, I, I I think that there's really there's good checks, there's good balances. We've got public, in, like you can see the public inquiries, the good. privacy impact assessments, which have been done on those government services. But at the same time, like there is this attitude for um, government leaders, like Home Affairs, the minister there, the previous minister, they want to consolidate those security agencies. They've put out tenders for those facial recognition services. The government has AI ethics principles. And this is a real issue for me, that they have these principles, they've asked businesses to trial them, and that's all public. They're, they're promoting these things, the CSIRO is doing it, but they won't turn that, those ethical principles, onto what they're already doing. And I, I would ask, well, they've got a principle of fairness, right? They, they want businesses to make sure that when you're doing AI, it's not biased, it's not discriminatory. But that facial identification service, where we know there's discrimination, in those products and the accuracy is not great for dark-skinned women yes, yes. and children um, or, you know, a whole range Non-white of people. Non-white people, yeah. Yeah, it's so, high, high but they, they, false positive. So where, where is that in the privacy impact assessment? Where's the public information that a facial, a, a facial identification service, when a federal police officer checks somebody in far north Queensland, you know, pulls someone over and then runs that um, person's face and it's a dark-skinned Indigenous man, and they say this person's a criminal when they're, when they're not, mm. there's no... Did well, this happen? I, no. Well, I'd just like to see bias and correction mm. statistics. I'd like to see the, the sort of validation that they've done on the accuracy of that technology. And that sort of thing is, it's not happening, you know. And the Office of the Information Commissioner, um, her rights are curtailed when it comes to security services. She doesn't have the right to do the same investigations. It's not a very well-resourced agency. So we need to have, um, like, these levels of protection. And that starts with... On a federal level, right? Yeah, it starts with biometric laws. Um, it starts with, like, an AI safety commissioner. Like, the Human Rights Commission has made a number of recs about how we could do these things better. Um, there's been no response to that. So why, why is it taking so long? For some, why there was, there's no urgency? What do you think... Like, what's happening here? Like Are lot. they buying time so they can build their own database? Because I know that Home Affairs is building database of facial recognition in Australia. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole BBC report on that. And I was just like, oh, are they buying time? This is why they're delaying it? I mean... So they can build that database, extensive database, and then they just say, yeah, now it's regulated. But all, we already have this database. What worries me also is I always call private facial recognition companies that collect your facial print. I call them the back door for law enforcement because law enforcement today, if they need to access private data, they need to have a warrant. They, there's a law there stops between you and them. But when they have those partnership with, with uh, these privately held companies, this is it. They bypass the law. And there's a good case, like a good business case of Amazon Ring. Amazon Ring is... Um, you buy this uh, intercom, and this intercom has a camera with facial recognition technology connected to the cloud. So real-time scanning is the, I call it the largest crowdsourced mass surveillance in the world, is the Amazon Ring. And at the time, they were selling very cheap ring to people around the world, around America. They were very busy signing all these partnership with law enforcement around the US. And they promised that, if you have any suspect, we can tell you exactly their location because we have this network of cameras scanning all these neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Do we want to see that? Like, 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 like mm. And people who paying subscription mm. to have ring in their houses, we're they funding, didn't know. We're funding this yeah, surveillance we are ourselves. Funding, crowdfunding now for surveillance, mass mm. surveillance. And uh, there are a lot of now uh, Fight for the Future is a good advocacy group mm -hmm. in the US. Yep. They have cancel ring there's a big campaign that I joined uh, about that. But also, what, what else facial recognition business cases we can talk about, like Ring, like uh, Clearview? That's a good one, actually. Mm. As you would know, like a lot of Australian businesses are collecting like CCTV image data already, and that's not necessarily smart, um, you know, facial recognition. But it could be if you apply the right technologies. So there's companies like um, Black AI in Melbourne, and they can take um, CCTV vision, uh, they can apply you know, um, AI to it and get facial imprints and um, biometric um, data from they that. They generate it from CCTV Yeah, and image. then the 
the issue really is then when it comes to the rights for data sharing, where you've got these huge data sets that companies might have, um, and then you've got a government which can compel um, businesses to provide that, you know, or courts under subpoenas or under national security laws. And then you've got the third wheel, which are these AI tech startups with these amazing technologies which can infer new data, like new, new personal information from CCTV vision. And if you put all three of those things together, maybe, you know, there's a risk there. Um, and I think about the data sharing laws, which have just come up in Australia. Okay. It's taken two years. But there's provisions in that which were not, not well debated, but pretty much if the government, if you share data, commercial data with the government, then they have rights to the use of that data. It becomes Commonwealth um, data assets. And there, there were clauses around that, which... Um, yeah, so those data sharing arrangements, you're like, how well regulated will they be? You know, like a, data sharing. Yeah, will it be a data sharing agreement? Will it just be? Will it be regulated under contract law, or should this be regulated? You know, like in in something a bit higher level. You are listening to Tech for Evil with Reinhardt and Manal, and our guest Andrew McAllister joining us today, talking about ethics in technology and the. Uh, the interesting perils of facial recognition. And I wrote a piece, 10 reasons why Australians need to care about facial prints. And facial prints, as we mentioned, is just one of the biometric data and it's very important because now we're, we're picking a momentum because of the bunning and people don't know why they should care. And I hope this episode helped them why they should care. One of the reasons I wrote, well, thank you for bringing the bias and the high error um, and uh, discrimination because it really impact people in <clears throat> the vulnerable groups of society more than the rest because they're already over-policed and they're already over-surveilled. Mm. My problem is with the use of mass surveillance technology is a normalize being on co under constant surveillance. So to the way that we're numb, like we don't, we just completely feel this ship has sailed. Mm. Uh, I can't care. Bit like, like cooking a lobster, right? You, uh, you bring the water up slowly, you bring the temperature up slowly until finally it's boiling and you've got no, no idea and no escape at that point. And we're slowly being acclimated to increasingly more oppressive forms of technological control, oversight, surveillance, which is then being connected with law enforcement, Lobster. politics. <laughs> the lobsters, they always... Oh. Can I say, so what do you think <laughs> Europeans do? when, Like what happened when they wanted to introduce facial recognition? What was their reaction? Because Europe for me is always the standard when I look at yeah, when it comes yeah. to privacy and, and digital rights. Uh, I can think of something that I've been following closely for my work, which is um, the AI um, regulations which are coming through Europe. Um, and there's been a lot of debate about that. But what the way that they're going to regulate it in the EU and it's also in Canada is it's by product and by purpose. And I think that's a really good approach that Australia could learn from, that we can identify use cases where we say this is ethically a problematic. Yeah, this is a real problem for us. So in, in the EU, and these, it's going to take a long time for these AI laws to get, there's like 3,000 amendments which have been proposed through the EU. So they're getting there. But the, they've divided it by risk. So there's high risk, there's prohibited, there's high risk, um, down to low risk. What's prohibited under those? So prohibited is like biometric... Thank you. Facial, yeah, no. Well, well it's, <laughs> but it's, it's biometric facial scanning in public is prohibited for the purposes of law enforcement. I love this. Well, so wouldn't that that's put Europe. What, but wouldn't that put what you, so what happened to you in the IV would not be able to happen in Europe. Is that no, right? Well, that's not, no, it could. It's a, it's oh. a, that use, that prohibited use case is, it's got a caveats on it. So it's like, um, it's biometric scanning in public. Um, and that may not have been public at the IV. And it's also not necessarily for law enforcement purposes. Mm. So, Grey area. But if they yeah, share yeah. it with law enforcement, so like, I don't understand, like it. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't, I, well, I like the like the product, is that because of the matrix there that they're using the product and purpose? 
Yeah. For example, yeah. you've got the product, which is I want to get into the Ivy. That's the product. They're selling me an experience and things that go along with that. And then the purpose there is not clearly defined. It's not clear that they're submitting my face to law enforcement for some sort of next action. It's just sort of passive yeah. in a way. It's sitting there waiting potentially to be used I mean, against me. I, I'm, not, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not an expert on EU law, but I'd be very surprised if... Um, I think that's a, the narrow definition of prohibited biometric use um, is really around that one-to-many um, surveillance um, by governments, that sort of use case. Um, so that's, you know, the way they're looking at it is by use case. I also think that's important because there are use cases where people would say, um, okay, I'm okay with facial um, recognition for certain purposes. But are, are those people who say okay, are they informed? Because... You're taking my agency away from me and my, my right to self-determination. Mm. And that's why I left my mm. country. When you take it or leave it, it's a very asymmetric, I'd say, relationship with tech companies. Mm. Because I couldn't get in if I, w I didn't accept my face. They didn't give me another option. And well, they didn't tell you what it was for either. And you had to too. look it up yourself. And that too. And even if they told me, hey, we're using facial recognition and I wasn't aware of the risks and the high risks of collecting such biometric data. I was, if not, I wasn't aware, they will tell me, and I say, yeah, okay, I'm fine with that. I think people really need to be aware. I think we really need to talk more about these things. Everyone using technology. Mm. And if all our life is now being digitized, I call it digitized life without digital rights. So we use technology mm. and all the technology makers, they don't even think of the impact until later. They just create, they, they um, have their uh, creation in the public. And then when that creation is used and misused, misused then they come and apologize, like ask for apology, uh, uh, not permission. Mm -hmm. So they only deal with the implication mm -hmm. of the abuse of their data is later. From, from an ethicist point of view, what do you think of that mindset when it comes to making technology, that we don't look at the misuse or the dual use, whatever you call it, mm. of how it could be later on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, it's myopic, it's narrow, and it's not re in a business interest to not consider ethics. I think that the idea of ethics in technology is an idea that's maybe 20 years from now, I think people will look back at this time and say, well, of course, why didn't we expect that there was a, something like a nutritional label on this product, which will tell me whether or not it's biased or... Um, so that sort of idea, and also for companies using data for good, you know, I think that that will be an expectation of maybe the next generation. The way we look at products now and say, well, you, of course you will report on environmental sustainability and your impact on society. Um, if you're sitting on a massive data asset and you're not using that overtly for public good, I think people's attitudes in the future might be like, well, that's really something that we expect. And it's not something we expect now, but there are, you know, companies are coming around to it where they're, they're doing data for good, they're partnering with organisations. Um, a lot of it's ethics whitewashing, but there is this... I love this ethics whitewashing. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's group, as you know, there's groups for data for we good. We call it zuckwashing here, by the way. Zuckwashing is anything got to do with privacy. <laughs> Well, but, I, but I do think that they that that there is more. There will be a growing expectation that people are aware that all this data is being collected and they hmm. want it used for the public good. Like, and if you're a retailer, you're sitting on health data. If you're selling fruit and veg, or if you're um you're Amazon, you're a logistics company. You like you're sitting on supply chain data, which could be used for you know making sure people get. But yeah, healthy let's talk products. about this. So. First of all, they make money out of our data. We don't get share of that pie. Second, this data that can be used, it can be used for their own good, not for the good of society, to give them that you know competitor advantage over the rest. Because we call data in computer science, we call it the new oil. Mm -hmm. The one who has most data, the one who understands the trends, where the market is going, can even create Mm. Uh, um, people, uh, behaviors and needs and mm. new products. So for me, it's again, 
Well, and third, and third, the data is not limited to that legal jurisdiction. It could be collected in Australia, but find its way across shores into yeah. other countries, and God knows what happens to it and there. And God knows when they use it for behavioral communication, like what happened in Cambridge Analytica, mm. because you understand people's behavior. And there are a lot of companies in Australia, like Sway, Auspex, they, the political parties use it because they have access to all this behavioral data about voters. And now they can craft the right messages for the voters to sway them to vote for us. So just looking at the large, you know, uh, implement, like how this data can be exploited mm. later, it impacts democracies, impacts who's mm. going to be in the running, uh, who's going to be in the office. Mm. So I think that's the big picture that we want to focus on. A lot of people think, I just want to go have a drink with my friends or I want to go have fun or I'm going to go shop for grocery. But they don't think for the collective uh, collective um, harm because you think of your kids, you think for future generation, you mm. think of your democracy. So this mass collection and consolidation of data on a whole demography puts that whole country actually in danger because as you mentioned... When that data is, let's say, shared with another country, and they can, mm. they can understand. It's under a different legal jurisdiction yeah. as well. At that point, they understand your citizens, and they send out. They understand. They go and support a certain political candidate. It's for me. It's just like looking at the big picture. It's mm. very important. It's not only my facial print. Mm. It's like the whole demography. That's right. Yeah. You I mentioned Canada earlier when we were speaking, uh, Andrew. What was it about Canada in particular that you found interesting in this conversation? Oh, just that they have, they're on the front foot with some um, of their ethics work, particularly with artificial intelligence. They've, they've just put out a Canadian bill, C27, but it's regulating AI and it's mandating um, ethical use of AI. Uh, and they've identified like high impact um, use cases, things like biometrics, which will be subject to like greater controls under the legislation. So that's a reference point for us. Um, also, EU's is similar. US are getting there. They're, they, you know, Joe Biden's pretty keen to do some regulation. The government in Australia has put out a position. They put out a paper a couple of months ago and just said, "Well, what do we think about this?" It's pretty much it doesn't say anything. There's no timelines. So they're just um, there's no sense of urgency in Australia mm -hmm. for addressing this. And yet, you know, like there, there's obvious harms, you know. But there are some, like the regulators have come together, the ACCC, the Information Commissioner, um, there's a child protection sort of person. Yes, there's some motion also yeah, around and bullying like, online well, and, and yeah, the types and of so comments. They're, they're, they've said just a couple of weeks ago that they're going to be looking at algorithms and algorithmic impact as a, a thing. But um, And the old ACCC regulator, Rod Sims, he, he, just before he left, he was very big on nudge um, marketing, so dark pattern design, you know, like the way that you can put in the wrong rank, you know, you can do rankings on websites that, you know, mislead people. So it's not quite consumer law. And it's not covered by the Privacy Act, but it's just ethically really uncomfortable. Mm. And it's like, and and they've done a couple of um, you know cases like Travago, where there was a ranking, you know, and it made it look like you're getting the best deal for your holiday, which you weren't. Wow! And that was deceptive, you know. So they, we they talked. We have a whole episode about dark, the dark, oh, dark patterns patterns. of right, technology right. design. Yeah. So these are all ethical, yeah, how amazing. ethical issues that are coming up. But I think with biometrics, you know, this is one more. Uh, in one more sort of use case, one more like a little change to the machine learning, zero, one weighting, changes the confidence intervals, just one more bit of information which is being used, you know, in ways which need regulation. And particularly the market, not businesses particularly, but those markets, like these, these people that are selling political data, you know, and the behavioural insights companies. Yes, yes. Like, that what scares me actually the most. Not, yeah, the, yeah. not the shoppers and like what the, we buy. The ad tech companies um, like Mumbrella and these sorts of people that they've got digital comms platforms, they put together marketing information and they sell consumer segments. And like some of these products in Australia are pretty sophisticated. You've got News Corp swapping data with Coles. Um, uh, they've got transactional data from MasterCard. So you can log into realestate.com, read the financial review, shop at Coles. They know where you are. This is publicly available info. Like they, it is out there. Gets um, correlated and then yeah, commercialised. Yeah, and they, and they literally brag about it. Like if you can, you can find them online and they say, you know, our reach is 16 million Australians. You know, we've got six or eight million 
um, you know, like, and they, uh, they'll brag about the under 18s that they've got. Yeah, reached Facebook to. bragged yeah. about how they yeah, could yeah, target six million yeah. young Australians yeah. for advertising. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. You, when you and I were chatting earlier, we were getting to know each other a bit. You were talking about your past, and you mentioned something quite interesting because I want to connect a point you made about um, tech for good. And the fact that what I want to ask you, what does good look like? I got the impression that in your past work with charities, you right. were able to actually to demonstrate a very good argument for technology being used in a productive, socially responsible way. I want to hear a little yeah. bit more yeah, about yeah. that. And maybe maybe just um, with all the dark, <laughs> dire right. stuff yeah. we've been talking about, hear a bit about the good news story out of what technology could be used for yeah. if we changed our thinking on it. Yeah, I mean, it's not all doom and gloom. And I'm, I'm quite passionate about that um, data for good, you know, and I, I think there's a real opportunity for businesses. But I, in my previous jobs, I worked for the National Prescribing Service and for the Digital Health Agency and the Institute of Health and Welfare. And they sit on massive um, data assets, public health data assets. And, and my last job, um, they collected GP data, about 10% of all the um, patient records in Australia, and GPs consented to that. And we would de-identify it, turn it into a huge public um, health data asset, about 3 million records, and then using very, very particular ethical controls, putting it through human research ethics committees with the College of uh, General Practitioners, we would then broker that um, not-for-profit. We'd sell it, um, we'll send it to universities. Um, so maybe 100 different cases there where we use public health data so things like COVID, asthma, tracking, uh, looking for cancer clusters in the community, um, trying to track like um, the, the, the dietary, dietary, um, so using the general practice record to figure out dietary requirements in Indigenous communities. And this sort of thing uh, can, it can really save lives. And that's actually the tagline in the UK, which Australia won't pick up, but they, they say, give us your data and we will save lives. So it's not just data for good, but this is like public health data is the same as, you know, like um, funding cancer research. The, the more they can consolidate and use data for those purposes, like COVID, you know, like that sort of data, um, you know, being able to figure out where those clusters are in real time saves lives, you know. So, you know, there, there's a real opportunity. Um, and retailers that collect that sort of health data that know, you know, 100 years of shopping data. They've tagged all their products by, you know, who's buying what? Are they, is it high sugar? Is this vegetarian? Is it kosher? They've got all of this data, which could be used to track things like, you know, indigenous um, dietary requirements, you know. So they're closing the gap in Australia. Five out of seven of the closing the gap metrics are related to diet. And there's companies that have that information you know, like um, retailers, and they could be using that to, you know, to help inform policy. <coughs> so there, there are, there's like huge opportunities, I think, for... Yeah, I love using data to that. inform policy, to inform yeah. research. Like when you take decisions or create a law, a new law, it's based actually on Make science. it evidence-based, yeah. Yeah, mm. that's, that's the best, actually. Yeah, so there's uh, that sort of data, but if you look at the data for good societies, there's a real... There's a data for good society. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, we've got to hear more about it. Who are they? Tell us. Oh, there's there's actually a fair few. There's one in Sydney. There's a data for good meetup group, um, and the the membership of that is like hundreds. There are hundreds of data scientists, mostly, I would say, like graduate, younger data scientists. That Mia loves meetup groups and well, they, building they, societies, they, so they, I think her eyes are going wide. Yeah, I'm definitely joining them. Yeah, there's a data for good group in Australia that. Um, you know, people will volunteer their time. So it's not just the data, it's the data algorithm, the products that people could build and it's a volunteering data people. So, you know, to go into charities and say, you know, like how can we, how can we use your, your data in a better way? So, and, and also, you know, Harvard X, it's an online college and it's free. They provide over 10 courses in data science. So anyone who is interested to know more about data science, you can do that for free. I think that's mm. whoever owns the data and know how to make use of it, analyze it, and take decisions based on that, I think owns the future. Mm. Most, most companies, the problem is the monopolies, those big monopolies that own all the data, 
and governments just try to pick that data from them and they don't have access to it. Um, yeah. I think having data scientists working for companies, uh, those t- um, our friend Gareth Williams, Dr. Gareth Williams, he just started Clean Sense and it's such amazing. He goes to all these water, like Sydney water, Brisbane water, and they're sitting on historical amount of data and he was he did he just cleaned it and he now helps them uh, make sure that uh, you know leakage uh, uh, it cleans their data and it really helps them take decisions the water engineers and how amazing it's an entrepreneur he mm-hmm. did that by himself and now he's giving subscription to Sydney water and Brisbane water it's, mm-hmm. as you mentioned data for good we can see yeah. the you the good uses of it and how it makes enhance our life it shouldn't be only about selling us more and i I know we use the word consumers and i'm against the word consumers because we get programmed with whatever we hear we're not consumers we're humans and the more they say hey consumers uh, just buy more i'm gonna change change your behavior so you can come and shop here i'm really against these things sometimes i just want to sit home do nothing not leave the house because everyone is taking my data. Everyone is, and no one is. I don't know who's taking it. I don't know what it's ending. Well, that's because some of us are humans and some of us are aspirational humans. We're, we're humans in the making. Some I wish of I us can were. invent this bubble where I can <laughs> enter the bubble and it just prohibit any data collection about me when I leave the house. <laughs> like in yeah. Saudi Arabia, used to cover my face. Pretty much, they didn't have my facial print there. Yeah. Sometimes here, I'm like, should I cover my face again? <laughs> so no one takes facial prints of me. Or maybe yeah. use that makeup, the, the funny makeup. I think there is, there is sort of, I think there is hope in this. It's not all doom and gloom because what I see is that more companies, large companies going, Hang on, customer trust is really important to mm-hmm. us. Yeah. And this is good for business. Like in the long run, yes. Yeah, and in the long run we want to be strategic about this, then we have to think about the responsible use of data because it's in in the interest of our customers and but also our business. So when it becomes a business interest, as an ethicist, I don't want to talk to legal really. I mm. want to, I want to talk to the brand people, the strategic people in the organization. And I want them to sort of understand that this is this is living the values that you talk about as a business. This is something that should fit in your sustainability plan, you know, where you, can, you need to be using data in a way that's like long-term. As and a shared I, value. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I do think that technology got us into this problem where, you know, it's just in hyperdrive, you know, use of biometrics and all mm-hmm. of these different data types. But at the same time, there are ways that technology can help get us out of it. And I see things happening like zero point privacy, mm. new products being developed like Telstra. If you look at Telstra Labs, they've actually developed a product where um, the phone will ping to the Wi-Fi point and it can, it can then anonymise you on a camera so that when you're walking past a CCTV camera, um, it'll just turn into a green blob. Mm. Um, and, that, and you might be able to set a, put a setting on your phone in the future, which will be like, I want to opt out of all tracking on my device and it will work, but then I want to opt out of CCTV and smart cameras will go, oh, here comes a device, that person, I'm going to blur. Mm. You know, so like I, so technology what, got us into this, but it could well, get us well, out. I mean, I, I think that if consumer sentiment, and it's pretty clear, people don't like to be tracked. Like these, it's very consistent, like... You know, Australians don't like this. It's very invasive. Yeah, and we don't don't like it. So maybe the market will develop products which can protect us from this. And and Andrew, what's zero point privacy? Well, that idea that um, that you're protected at the at the device level. So like um, like these blockchain privacy products where you're not you're you're protected. Your identity is protected before it even goes into any system. Right. So like you're, you're at the point where anything you do like on your device is, is not going to be sent out. I can't, I can't really explain Like that. an ultimate gatekeeper. Yeah, yeah, but it's like the idea that your device is de-identified. Um, so the proximity of that control is moved yeah, all the way to my right. device yeah, that's in my precisely. hand. Yeah, so that's a better way to explain it. So where you've got controls in the cloud, those sorts of things. Instead of that, they'll move closer to the person. Um, and Apple have done that recently with photographs yeah. where it's now that AI is developed enough, it can sit on your device. There's processes in your phone powerful enough to run AI over photos. 
and figure out whether or not it's child abuse. Mm. And but that sits at your phone, and in a, and that that sort of technology closer to the person means that um, we can also use it to protect ourselves. And I, I can I can imagine a world like that where we just that we can we can be totally sort of protected. Um, and all of these sort of other systems uh, have to ask for access. You're, you're a dad, Andrew, so I'm curious, what type of rules do you have in your family for smartphones <laughs> and devices and being online? Do you have any? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a, maybe don't ask me that. I don't have... Do you have any rules or are, is, it, is it more like a free-for-all? Uh, we do have rules. Yeah, we do have rules. About it. So I, I really just use the same sorts of, um, you know, gateways like YouTube for kids, that sort of thing. But I'm very conscious about the, the, the use of information, so what they put on. I, I don't mind if they, what they're really watching on YouTube if it's the kids' version, but I, I draw the line of um, interaction. So where my son has like, he's got a pretty active TikTok account but he's not so much of a contributor. And I, where my girls who are nine and eight, I, I don't want them commenting on YouTube videos. So for me, the risk, the risk is around um, their interaction. And that goes to decisioning rights as well. So privacy should be reframed in terms of decision rights. So where, where their behavior is being shaped and their decision-making is being um, curtailed, that's when I sort of go, I don't like them using... Like, really well-designed things like Minecraft videos. Because it could be subverting their decision-making Yeah, Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I, it just makes me uneasy, uneasy, particularly like the YouTubers, you know, where the product is so engaging and quick, you know, and they're, they're, so, they're so well made. I'm just, you know, and I, to be honest, I let them use it, but I'm, I'm very sceptical about extremely well-made video games because, you know, mm-hmm. I, I love playing video games and... And, you know, these really well-made products sort of, I know that... And it's highly addictive. It's design by design. But yeah, yeah, the bad yeah. news for you, Andy, <clears throat> is TikTok, even if your kids are not engaging, commenting or anything, yeah. they study their use behavior and they collect so much data about that. And there is a big piece now I was just reading this morning about AI, very intrusive privacy. Mm. But just looking at the videos, like how, how they scroll, what they stopped at, how long they spent time there what type of videos, and it's so scary, the accuracy of their algorithm of knowing what you really like and want mm. to watch next. Mm. And it always exaggerated. Yeah. Yeah, the shaping of your behaviour by the algorithm is much more dangerous to me than the other way around, like you contributing. Being a passive so, one. Yeah, so where, where it's giving you suggestions and recommendations and shaping your behaviour, that's, yes. that's really where it crosses yes. the line for me. I. You know, I get, I get very worried about those things. Especially TikTok and it's Chinese, it's owned by a Chinese company. What would be your message to technologists like us when it comes to facial recognition and privacy ethics? Uh, what is the message for the regulators about facial recognition? Uh, I think for, for technologists, um, for businesses, startups, um, this, is, this is not something that is compliance. This is something that will help you. So they, these are the sorts of things which make your business go faster. So think about the brake. ethics. If you think about ethics, the, the, yeah. the brakes of a race car, if you think about it like that, you've got a race car, why do they have brakes? It's because when you're navigating all of this terrain, you need to slow down. If you mm-hmm. don't have brakes, you're going to spin out. So think about these ethical brakes on your product because if you get them right, hmm. they'll help you speed up, go quicker, and you can get to where you need to go. Be more profitable. Exactly, yeah. So, and and that's, run, yeah. yeah, that's really, like, my message would be that don't think about this as a compliance issue. Think about it as a trust um, engagement issue with your audience because, you know, just look at the statistics. Australians don't like being tracked. They don't want, their, they don't want facial recognition, um, you know, for authentication or for tracking. Um, so just, you know, the regulators aren't going to catch up yet, um, but the, all of that will happen in time. But meanwhile, you can be ahead of that and um, get these things right in the beginning, save yourself time in the long run. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Australia is, gets ahead of the world when it comes to facial recognition, yeah, re- regulating facial recognition. What would you tell the regulators today? Oh, just hurry up. Like, hurry up. <laughs> hurry up, regulators. I'm not Australian. I applied for my citizenship. I think home affairs li- hates me now. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is a message to home affairs. If you're and listening. regulators, please hurry up. <laughs> with the regulators, like they are making movements. Australia's done some movements with big tech, you know, and they're, they're, they're keeping the, the fires burning. But there needs to be some urgency and there needs to be um, regulations with teeth. You know, we, we need to with resource teeth. these yes. things. You could find yeah. when you violate so, yeah, people's like privacy. The ex-Human Rights Commissioner, Ed Santow, he's developed some model laws which are coming out in the next week or two. It'll be in the press. They're biometric model laws. They're suggestions to government about okay. what they should do. Um, and they'll be really well balanced. Um, he works very closely with Choice. Um, so Can you explain Choice to the... But Choice are the ones which did the survey which uncovered Bunnings and Kmart. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are a consumer protection? Yeah, they're a consumer protection body, but they mm-hmm. they fed into digital rights um, reports that the Human Rights Commission had Amazing. done in, in need, 2020. Yeah, like um, so obviously they've talked about these things. There's a very convenient release of the Choice Bunnings stuff at the same time. These biometric model laws Amazing. are coming out. Good timing. Yeah, but like, look at those things. Look at those proposals. And um, you know, and sort of get a sense of urgency. Thanks, Andy. Regulations with teeth. There you have it, everyone. You've been listening to Tech for Evil with Manala Sharif, Reinhard Sosen, and our guest for the day, Andrew McAllister. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. No, yeah, thank you. Thanks fine. for coming. Scary and fun. <laughs> scary and fun. That's our all over. That that that's our motto. I think, isn't it? Tech for Evil. Thank uh, you, scary everyone, and for fun. listening.